I just resolved that I was going to wait for a deceased kidney. I'd never expected Kelly to come into my life, but Kelly, I told her that I needed a kidney, and I would say maybe two weeks later, she came to me and said, Morgan, I would like to give you a kidney. Imagine being told that you have to do dialysis, and then that's it. Get to know the person before the disease. And a lot of times we tend to forget that. We think people are just their disease. Nothing more, nothing less. Welcome to the third episode of the Nephron segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, never dilute. Join a group of nephrons as we try to push the boundaries of kidney medicine. Our focus today is patient perspectives and advocacy. I'm Sam Kant, a transplant nephrology fellow at Johns Hopkins University. I'm Ellie Manum, a six-year MD-PhD student at the Medical College of Georgia. Hi, everyone. I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Sparks, a nephrologist at Duke University. We have two esteemed guests with us today to talk about their perspective on kidney health and advocacy. We have Morgan Reed and Patrick G. Morgan? Hi, everyone. I am Morgan Reed, and I am the Director of Transplant Policy and Strategy with the National Kidney Foundation. I'm also a kidney recipient. My best friend in college donated her kidney to me 15 years ago. Really excited to be talking to all of you today. And Patrick G. My name is Patrick G. I am a healthcare consultant and founder and chief executive hope deal for I Advocate, which is a health and wellness organization. I'm also a kidney transplant recipient of five years, and my kidney came from a deceased donor. Well, welcome, both of you. So let's start with Patrick, and we want to know, what was the impetus for you to get involved in advocacy in the kidney space? Actually, my advocacy is my ministry. I'm also an ordained minister, so I never wanted anybody to go through what I went through. So after my very tumultuous transplant journey, I launched I Advocate, and that's exactly what I do. I take emerge faith and health literacy and go into underserved, undervalued, disenfranchised communities of color. Would you uh, say you had a tumultuous transplant journey? Do you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit more about what that was? Oh, certainly. April the 21st, 2017, um, I get my kidney transplant, but when I wake up, my kidney doesn't. So it's still sleeping. They tell me that I'm dealing with delayed graft function. So I have to do 24 hours of dialysis every other day. Five days after my transplant, they told me that I had a blood clot in my neck. I needed another surgery. Three days after the blood clot surgery, I was hemorrhaging. I needed another surgery. 17 days later, they told me that I had to have a laparoscopic peritoneal window created so that I could drain internally, uh, but my kidney still was not working. So after 33 days in the hospital, four surgeries, six days of occupational and physical therapy, my kidney didn't actually start functioning until the 47th day. Wow, that's incredible. How long were you on dialysis or PD or whatever you were on before you got your kidney transplant? Yeah, I did both. The majority of my time was doing PD 
and I did some in-center hemodialysis, but I was on dialysis for four, approximately four years. Morgan, do you mind sharing uh, with our listeners your story? So when I was 18, I was diagnosed with IG nephropathy. And uh, when I was 21, I went into kidney failure. I was visiting my aunt in Atlanta. I'm from New Jersey. And I was in Atlanta when I found out that my kidneys failed. I walked into, um, we were shopping because that's my favorite thing to do. Don't judge me. And I said to my aunt, I feel weird. I don't feel like myself. Something's not right. And she asked me, well, when's the last time you've checked your blood pressure? And I don't know at that time, you know, I was 21. And when you're 21, you think you're invincible, right? You think that nothing's going to happen to you. So we go to a grocery store. I sit down at a blood pressure cuff and my blood pressure reads 228 over 160. I call my mom in New Jersey, who's a nurse. And I say, mom, my blood pressure is 228 over 160. And she said, that can't be right. Take it again. So I take it again. The second time around, it was a little bit higher. My aunt rushes me to the emergency room. The ED doc comes to me after doing, you know, a bunch of tests, labs and whatnot and says, your creatinine is 18. I've never seen anyone with a creatinine of 18. Your blood pressure is through the roof. I had grade four retinopathy. I had cerebral edema. I get admitted to the ICU. They stabilize me. I fly back to New Jersey and I started peritoneal dialysis right away. Once I started feeling better again, I enrolled back in university, which is where I met my good friend, Kelly. Kelly and I would hang out on campus all day long, but at the end of the day, she and my other friends would go out and party in the city. I did not. I went home to connect to a dialysis machine. But Kelly would always ask me, like, why don't you want to hang out and party with us at night? Why don't you come to the city with us? And one day I finally shared with her, listen, I'm on dialysis. I need a kidney transplant. This is why I can't hang out with you all. I never shared with my college friends or peers that I was on dialysis because I didn't want anyone feeling sorry for me or treating me any differently. But Kelly, I told her that I needed a kidney. And I would say maybe two weeks later, she came to me and said, Morgan, I would like to give you a kidney. And I, I told her no, because I literally could not reconcile. I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that I wouldn't be able to pay her back for doing something so magnificent for me. And Kelly came to me again six months later and said, Morgan, if I can give you a kidney, I will. And that time, I just assumed that that was God saying, look, girl, I'm going to throw you this lifeline one more time. And so I shared with Kelly, the only thing that I can do is give you the name and the number to the transplant coordinator. Can't facilitate this for you in any way. Uh, this is something that the transplant center wants to make sure that you're doing on your own accord. So she went through with all the testing. And uh, January 9th, 2007, I got my new lease on life. That's my story in a nutshell. Those are two really incredible stories. Morgan, for you, I was just wondering why it was that you chose PD for dialysis and if you could talk a little bit more to us about that. Yes. So I knew nothing about dialysis. I knew eventually with IG nephropathy that I would need a kidney transplant, but I knew nothing about dialysis. And maybe not because my nephrologist didn't share that with me. It could have just been my own ignorance and lack of education around dialysis because I just thought in my mind when it comes time to need a transplant I'll just get one from one of my siblings or a plethora of my cousins so I didn't choose peritoneal dialysis my nephrologist did and I I loved my nephrologist because I didn't have health insurance when my kidneys failed I was 21 and back in 2005 that was when you know, once you turn 21, you got kicked off your parents' health care insurance. So for me, I just assumed that if I didn't eat like salty foods at McDonald's, I wouldn't spike my blood pressure and therefore I wouldn't ruin my kidneys, which we all know is not the truth. But it was my nephrologist that said to me, 
which I'll never forget, Morgan, you were eventually going to need a transplant. Um, it's happening sooner than anticipated. And when you receive a transplant, it is then that you will know the value of a kidney. And he said, I'm going to put you on peritoneal dialysis because you're young, you're in college, and I want you to be able to maintain some semblance of your livelihood and, and be able to do the things that 20-somethings do. So he chose peritoneal dialysis for me, and I could not be more grateful to Dr. Anam because that's his name, and he was amazing, and he literally saved my life. It's really great to hear that you had a nephrologist that really does what we consider the ideal, which is really to focus on what is patient-centered care, what is best for you. And we know that not all treatments are the best for everyone. Um, and so along those lines, as a transplant nephrologist, a lot of what I do, particularly in the initial evaluation side of things, patients pre-transplant as we're talking about different options for kidney transplant and how challenging it can be to find a living donor. And so I would love to hear both of your perspectives. And Patrick, maybe starting with you, since you were the recipient of a deceased donor kidney transplant, what were your views on, on living donation? How did you approach that? How did your providers explain that to you? And did you think about um, approaching people for potential living donation? I wanted to, but I was totally afraid and embarrassed to ask anybody to donate a kidney for me. Um, I have five children and I was totally afraid. I knew they had their lives and um, it was a good thing that I didn't ask them because my second to the youngest son began doing in-center hemodialysis last year and my only daughter lives with lupus nephritis. And even when I had talked this over with some friends of mine, you know, you always heard the comments, you know, I would donate, but I got this going on. Or, Man, I drink too much. So oh, you don't want my kidney, you know, things like that. So I wanted to, but I just really, um, I knew that was a, a big sacrifice. And to be perfectly honest, I really didn't think I was wor worthy of somebody actually donating to me. I thank you for sharing that. Um, and definitely a lot of similar things we hear from patients. And of course, it is a really challenging thing to ask for that. And to ask for an organ from another person is asking for something. And even though we know that living donation is safe in many ways, of course, you know, why donate if, if you could rather not? And so it can be very challenging. Uh, so Morgan, you had a bit of a different experience. Could you tell us a little bit about that process and, and what that looked like for you and, and your friend who ultimately donated to you? You know, asking for a kidney is really, really hard because for me, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to like pay Kelly back. When it came to my siblings and my family, you know, we're, they're siblings and family, right? I'm like, you, it's kind of what you're supposed to do for me. Don't you want to keep me around? I'm one of five. And many of my siblings got tested. Some of my cousins got tested and they weren't a match for, you know, one reason or another. And I just resolved that I was going to wait for a deceased kidney. I'd never expected Kelly to come into my life. I'm actually going to try not to get emotional. I feel like there are times when I talk about this when I get really emotional. But I never expected to meet Kelly. I just knew that I was on the list. I knew in New Jersey the wait time for a kidney was three to five years. And I had just summed up that I was going to be waiting three to five years. And then also when you 
when we consider I'm black and in the black community, there's a lot of myths and misconceptions around donation and transplantation, even asking my family. So I have a brother who I'm O positive. I hope that's not too much to share. I'm okay saying that. But I have a brother who is O positive too. Perfect health. He worked out. No health issues whatsoever. But he doesn't like hospitals. He doesn't like needles. He didn't get tested. And my other siblings are really upset with him about that. But I, 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 it, it's, it's a difficult conversation to have, especially in the minority community. And, um, you know, back then there was social media, but it's not as prominent. It wasn't back in 2005. It wasn't as prominent as it is now. You know, now we have Instagram and we have Facebook and Twitter and all of these different platforms where if I needed a kidney now, I would just be all over the platform saying, listen, I need a kidney. Help me. Back then it wasn't like that. Not only was it not as popular, it's just when you're dealing with organ failure, it's like an onion. There's so many layers that you can peel back. Like you're trying to digest, I'm in organ failure. What does that mean? My dialysis nurse was my biggest support. My family, they were amazing. But it was my dialysis nurse and my nephrologist that really got me through because they understood this process. It's just, there's just a general lack of education and understanding, I think. And it makes it difficult. At that time, it made it difficult for me to ask and talk about living donation. Kelly just happened to continue to like, why don't you want to hang out with me? Why don't you want to hang out with me? And I just said, all right, all right, all right, listen, this is why I can't hang out with you. And it just so happened that um, this very serendipitous, miraculous friendship turned out to be something very sacred and special. You know, patients with kidney disease on dialysis and transplant, I feel they're really closely knit to the health system because they encounter so many people and parts of the healthcare system. You're spending so much time on dialysis and the end as a even as a transplant patient, you're pretty much in touch with your transplant nephrologist and the team for the foreseeable future. But pre-transplant, it's a pretty long road to get transplant uh, and, and an arduous one, I would say, you know, and I'd love to know from both of you, what do you think really went well during that period? And what could, what we do we really have to change in our healthcare system to make that whole process more seamless? I think as much information that healthcare providers can share with patients and their caregivers up front. I think that's really important. And trying to figure out different modalities to communicate education or the process about organ failure, dialysis, transplantation. I think it's really important for healthcare providers to explain to patients all of their treatment op options. Don't just assume that I want to be on PD. Don't just assume that I want to be on hemodialysis. Talk to me about everything. Um, talk to me about the process of transplantation. And sometimes it's not about talking, right? I might need a visual aid. I think it's really important for healthcare providers to try to find a way to meet people where they are. I think that is key because people don't know what they don't know. But if you want them to know, like you have to find a way to meet them where they are and communicate so that they can understand it. And again, Sometimes, you know, one of the things that Patrick said when he jumped on, he mentioned health equity and health literacy. And when we talk about like marginalized communities, underserved communities, I'm sure the rates of health illiteracy are higher than other 
communities. And I think it's just really important to just meet patients where they are. And it's hard to say, spend more time with patients so that they can ask you questions. Because I hear people say this all the time or providers say this all the time, you know, um, what questions do you have? It's hard to ask questions if you don't know what to ask. So I think that is really important. Like just, it's, you know what it is? It's a lot of handholding. This is what it is. This is what you're going through. And it may be, it may need to be a multi-level approach. Hearing something continuously may be helpful. Hearing it from the physician, hearing it from the APP, hearing it from the social worker, hearing it from the nurse that comes, I mean, whomever. I think it just needs to be a multi-layered approach. Patrick, I want to hear about your experiences and if you were to give some advice to doctors that are in training, getting ready to be a nephrologist, what would you tell them? First of all, I would just tell them to get to know the person before the disease. And a lot of times we tend to um, forget that. We think people are just their disease, nothing more, nothing less. Some folks, especially people of color, tend to be dehumanized. They are normally shamed for having chronic kidney disease, whether it's by rare genetic predisposition or diabetes or hypertension or whatever it is. It's always your fault. We don't tend to take into consideration social determinants of health. You know, when I was listening to Morgan speak, it reminded me that nobody told me about preemptive transplant. In April of 2013 is when I found out from my endocrinologist that I was at stage 3B and I didn't even know what kidney disease was. She never told me that diabetes was the number one leading cause of kidney disease. But then to wait until I'm at between 35 to 30% kidney function and I couldn't understand it. And then I start dialysis that same year and what's interesting is listening to Morgan again talk about her PD journey. My doctor told me that I was doing PD because I had a PhD and that I was competent enough to do PD and that I, I was less likely to be non-compliant. So my journey to my particular modality which I really appreciate, but yet I didn't need the microaggression to do it because it made me stick out and think that I was better than somebody else. And that was certainly contrary to the fact. When you think about single mothers trying to get a kidney transplant, that's almost impossible, especially if they don't have a care partner or caregiver or support system. When you look at insurance and uh, I mean, it's just a whole host of things, really what I just hope physicians would do and fellows and anybody that's thinking about working in this particular field is that they would have an ear to hear that they would really show their compassion and empathy toward the people that they care for. Because a lot of times you never know what that person is going through. Imagine being told that you have to do dialysis and then that's it. Nobody asks you if you want to talk to a therapist, if you need somebody to help you explain it to your family members. 
because when you go through this particular um, disease state, there's a lot of abandonment. There's a lot of married couples who the spouses can't take it and they will leave them. Families and homes have been destroyed because of chronic kidney disease and the lack of understanding as to why. And a lot of vows have been disrupted because people tend to not remember for better, for worse. They love the for better part. But when you get to the worst part, it's like, I can't handle this. And as a pastor, I have counseled a number of people in this particular situation. I think that a lot of what you bring up is really important for us to be talking about together. And I'd also like to hear from both Patrick and Morgan, you know, what do you guys think really are areas that we need to work on in terms of improving care for people with kidney disease who are in these positions? I can't reiterate education enough. Support is really important. When you're going through, you know, just to piggyback off of what Patrick was saying, when you're going through organ failure, it's like, you know, you're, you're venturing into the unknown. You don't know what to expect and you don't know how you're going to feel. And I think what's important, as Patrick mentioned, there's preconceived notions about people. And I think it's really important to get rid of those biases when you're on dialysis, you are exhausted. And I'm just saying me, if this were me again, but there were times when I was on dialysis where, oh my gosh, like the bathroom from my bedroom was maybe like 10 feet. I would be so winded. So I think about people in the dialysis centers that maybe they had just enough energy to, to get themselves up. They didn't have the energy to put on clothes, brush their hair, brush their teeth, but physicians see them in that state. And then there are these like preconceived notions that, oh, you can't be on PD. You're not capable enough to take care of yourself if you're on peritoneal dialysis. I think it's really important to get rid of those sort of biases. Support is really, really important for me personally, even though I had my family and they were amazing. It was my dialysis nurse because, I mean, this is what she did every day, helping dialysis patients. She was with me from the moment I started dialysis in the hospital until I received my transplant. And one of the things that's really important to me um, that would have been helpful to me is having someone like myself who was on dialysis or someone that had already been on dialysis to help me through that process. Post-transplant, it would have been helpful. So, I mean, those are just some things that I think about when I think about patients now and what physicians can do. It's one, just try not to be judgmental. People are going through a lot. I'm not going to look like my best self if I'm on dialysis. It's very difficult to do that. So, you know, don't just assume because I look, I don't know, a little disheveled. It's not because I don't care. It's probably because I'm exhausted. And I was on PD and I started to feel better after PD. But I think I hear, I just remember hearing stories from patients on hemodialysis, how they are exhausted when they come off of those machines and it takes them some time to bounce back. These are just things to remember because, again, if we look at statistics and if we look at data, even though minorities, marginalized communities are 
the people that have the highest rates of CKD, ESKD, ESRD, whatever you want to call it, end-stage renal disease, end-stage uh, kidney disease, they're the least likely to get transplanted. And again, it's this. I, I do think there's maybe some unconscious bias or maybe conscious bias or whatever it is that needs to be worked on so that patients aren't facing certain hurdles to get the care that they need. Patrick, did you want to um, add anything to that? What do you think are the next steps for us and how can we make care better for patients with kidney disease? One of the first things we need to do is deal with the mistrust um, in communities of color, uh, especially when it comes to organ donation. It's no secret that um, in black and brown communities, um, just like Morgan had talked about, there are certain biases, certain institutional and systemic biases that's really preventing people of color to be able to donate or to even want to donate. I know for myself, my particular transplant center, they had a book published in 2019. Uh, a staff tripped over some information that happened in the 60s. And next thing you know, you have a Pulitzer Prize winning author coming out with a book called Organ Thieves. And I'm sitting there going, wow. I, and, and nobody at my center had ever talked about this, about how there was a black man in the hospital and he was ill. There was a white guy that needed a heart. They took this man's heart and both his kidneys. They gave the white guy the heart. They gave his kidney to a young lady in Georgetown and the other kidney they used for research. And when they called on the man's family, the man found out that his brother didn't have any organs. And of course, they went to court and the judge said, you're right, this is egregious, yet there was a statute of limitation and there was no prosecution for that. So when now that we're in the age of social media, and the more kidney patients campaign for donate life and for folks to even, you know, with legislation on the Living Donor Protection Act, yet and still there are conspiracy theorists that talk about, hey, you really don't want to be listed as an organ donor because as soon as you go to the emergency room, they're going to see that and you're going to wake up without a kidney or whatever the case may be. I think when it comes to clinical trials, the trialist teams need to look like the communities that they're trying to recruit or that they're asking to participate in the particular clinical trials. I was recently asked to participate in a clinical trial. The trial didn't center around my particular affliction, but the lady was so adamant of trying to get as many black kidney patients in that she kept telling me to just to kind of lie about it. And then was telling me, well, if you know any other people, we'll give you $75 a head for bringing it in. I mean, come on now. We're in 2022 and we're still hurting people like this is slavery, but it's just a different type of slavery. So I, th I think when we, if we can deal with medical mistrust, if we can deal with 
certain microaggression and gaslighting language that's being used toward patients. And if we can just view patients as human beings, let's just disregard race because we know that's a social construct. Let's just be able to accept people as who they are. And let's just make this grand push that even though we may be afflicted, we still have careers. We still have gifts and talents that we can contribute to science. You know, if I can just jump in and say one thing, I think at the end of the day, everyone needs an advocate, right? And it's hard to have an advocate in your family members when all they've seen is kidney disease and the endpoint being dialysis. We all know that the endpoint doesn't have to be dialysis, but in certain communities, that's all that they see is CKD, ESRD, dialysis, and that's the end. So I just think that advocacy is really, really important. And I'm sure that's really difficult for providers because nephrologists have lots of patients and you guys are stretched thin. So I just think that if there could be just different treatment models or patient care models so that it's not all falling to the physicians or the APPs, but if there's some support in place, I think that's always something that's helpful. And it gives patients hope too. I mean, when you're going through organ failure, you just need hope. And I think advocacy is absolutely tied to hope, which is what people really need. Thank you, Morgan, Patrick, uh, both for sharing everything you've shared today. I think it's so important for us on the nephrology side to, to hear these stories and even going through training, taking care of many patients with kidney disease. We never really get to hear the stories in, in this amount of depth and hear actually what your day-to-day -day experience is. And I think to summarize some of the things that you brought up, it really makes me go back to really basic principles that we teach to first and second year medical students is to learn how to communicate, to learn how to listen to your patients, to be transparent, to have empathy, to see people as people and not as patients. And so I'm really grateful to hear both of you reiterate those things. And I think aside from all the all the science and the medicine and moving forward, I think we really need to go back to the basics and hearing your stories really it reiterates that for me. I think what you're saying is very challenging in some ways, but also in other ways, if we really just, again, just think about being honest and, and sharing what it is that we know and not being scared to share what is coming ahead and helping patients with kidney disease prepare for the next steps, I think that sounds like would go a long way. I think you hit the nail on the head, Samira. When we're talking about building trust with patients, I think it's everything that you just said. I think it's transparency. People want to be acknowledged, compassion, spending a little bit of time with them. I think those little nuggets over time will allow patients to feel comfortable with you and any other healthcare provider. And I think that helps to build relationships. And I think that ultimately builds trust. Just spending a little time, having compassion, again, um, transparency, and just taking time to listen and explain things in a way that is easy to digest. At that time, I didn't want my physician talking to me in medical jargon. Talk to me so that I understand what you're saying. And again, I think those sorts of things help to build relationships and ultimately build trust. If I could add to that, you know, COVID changed the mindsets of patients. You can go to the movie theater or cut on your TV and you see 
a DC comic movie or you see a Marvel movie, but patients now know that the real superheroes are the ones that wear the white coats, the one that wear the scrubs. Folks from dialysis, those that were able to be transplanted during the height of COVID and everything that you all have gone through and still deal with, we now have an understanding of, we see the human side of physicians that we hadn't seen before, that we never understood before, that we've never seen physicians vulnerable or even broken in some circumstances because they care so much about patients. If anybody can take anything from this particular podcast, I want them to know that we thank you so much for all that you've done with everything that I went through. I thank you because you didn't quit. You didn't tap out. And that allows us to say, well, if my doctor, if my nurse, if my tech, if they're not going to tap out, then I'm going to be the best patient that I can. I'm going to be the best person that I can. So thank you so much for just giving us voice, for wanting, for wanting to hear what we had to say, and for just this particular platform just to be able to share and to learn because I've gotten so much and my respect level has gone up a thousand percent for folks in this particular industry, with, especially with everything that I've gone through. I'm very grateful, but I think now patients actually see your cape. They actually see your gifts and your talents and your superpowers, which we hadn't seen before. So I, I just want to thank you for this. One of the things that I shared earlier is that support is really important. And the National Kidney Foundation has a peers mentor program for anyone with stage four, stage five chronic kidney disease. Anyone that's on dialysis, it doesn't matter which modality of dialysis a patient is on and transplant. And our peers program offers one-to-one -one mentor training. I just wanted to throw that out there for any patient that might be listening that may need additional support as you're going through your organ failure, dialysis, or even your transplant journey for any nephrologist or fellows or any clinicians that might be listening and you have patients that are in need of support, NKF does have a peers mentor support program. I can't talk more highly about it. It's a great opportunity for patients to connect with someone else that has been through this process that can help guide them through and give them the support that they need. Thank you all again. Very, very excited to chat with you all today. This has been great. Patrick, loved meeting you too. We need to know one thing that brings you joy in your life outside of medicine. I know we usually say this to doctors and other healthcare professionals, but what's one thing that brings you joy, Patrick? I have nine grandkids and I'm grateful for my kidney because I have to keep up with them. The youngest being three and I have a four-year-old granddaughter that thinks she's my wife. So she keeps me going. So yes, I have to stay straight for her. That's a lot of things <laughs> to bring you joy. And Morgan? You know, there's a lot of things that bring me joy, but what I really love is food. Food brings me joy. And it doesn't just, and it brings me joy because I like to eat. But food also brings my friends to my dining room table. 
It brings my family to my dining room table. So food, I love food. And I love what food can do. It can bring people together. And, and if I'm sharing my favorite food, I love Cuban food. I can eat vaca frita and, and rice and beans every single day. So food, food brings me so much joy. Thank you, Patrick and Morgan. As we come to the end of the Nefron segment, I can only think of one um, major line that I read in one of the Michael Connolly novels. Everyone matters or no one matters. Thank you, Morgan and Patrick, for being on this episode in a front segment. We're so glad to spend this time with you, to get to know you and your powerful stories. I can assure you from, at least from our group, we'll be walking back to the hospital tomorrow, more inspired having spoken to you tonight. And a big thank you to our listeners. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode in a front segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, never diluted. Thank you.